Tis the season to listen to musical masterpieces. I remember growing up, uh, my mother used to play Alvin and the Chipmunks. All I want for Christmas is my two front teeth, but now that I have them, I've moved on. I have a tradition of listening to George Frederick Handel's Messiah at Christmas time. Don't be impressed. Somebody gave it to me as a gift. I only probably own like two classical CDs. That's one of them. And uh, it's all about the arrival of the Messiah. The project was conceived when Charles Jennings, he was a well-known librettist, he drew together the text for the oratorio. That's what a librettist does. He gathers the text together, the scriptural passages, and he wanted Handel to put together this oratorio to battle against deism and to champion orthodoxy. So on the 10th of July, 1741, this is what he wrote to a friend. He said, Handel says he will do nothing next winter, but I hope I shall persuade him to set another scripture collection I have made for him and perform it for his own benefit in Passion Week. I hope he will lay out his whole genius and skill upon it that the composition may excel all his former compositions as a subject excels every other subject. The subject is Messiah. Handel did agree to compose this oratorio based on Jenin's scripture collections, and in just 24 days he completed Messiah. It was first performed in Dublin in 1742, and the work has been in continuous performance over the last 250 years. Imagine, those of you who have any experience uh, singing, whether in the shower or professionally or playing an instrument, imagine being chosen to be the first musicians, the first singers to perform this masterpiece, and at the personal request of Handel, the musical genius. How exciting it would have been to receive your part or receive my part uh, composed by Handel for me. What an honor it would be to play for him. What an opportunity to honor, in a human sense, honor Handel and make the Messiah sound beautiful for all the listeners. Having played in a wind ensemble, I know I'd be excited to play my part, eager to master it in anticipation of when all the instruments and all the vocal pieces come together as they complement one another they therefore show forth the glory of the Messiah. It's when each individual musician plays his or her specific role that the piece is beautified and the conductor is honored. Well, today we see again that God has composed a masterpiece in the institution of human marriage, where God has created marriage to be the union between one man and one woman, And God has also given them specific roles or specific parts to be carried out and fulfilled, but not that they might be exalted, but so that Christ and his gospel would be made much of and marriage be seen as beautiful. Please join me in opening your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. Ephesians 22 to 33. And we began looking at this passage a few weeks ago, and we saw there that Christian marriage is designed by God to follow a pattern, the pattern of Christ's relationship to the church. So that's kind of like the big main point 
of this uh, handful of verses here. Christian marriage is, is designed by God to follow a pattern, the pattern of Christ's relationship to the church. A few weeks ago, we took this passage and applied it to men. So men, husbands, if you want a refresher, if you want to be informed, you can listen to that. I uh, pray that God would bless you through that. Today, we apply it to Christian wives. Today, we apply it to Christian wives. Uh, the letter to the Ephesian church was written by Paul the Apostle in the early 60s AD. And he wrote to the Christians wanting to solidify them in the grace of the gospel, to stand firm in the grace of God. So chapters 1 to 3 are all about what God had done through Jesus Christ, who God is and what he had done. And then chapters 4 to 6, the second half, are basically all gospel implications that flow from it. Today, in chapter 5, we see the implications for Christian marriage. So here we have the blueprint, so to speak, for Christian marriage. So if you are married, if you want to be married, if you want to encourage your married friends, this passage is for you. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. I'll go ahead and read that. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Main point again, Christian marriage is designed by God to follow a pattern, that is, Christ's relationship with the church. And as we apply this to women... So wives here, uh, we're going to look at four aspects of biblical submission. Four aspects of biblical submission. Um, before we get to the aspects, we're helped to review the context uh, that comes right before this lengthy passage here. Uh, in 522, Paul begins to address biblical Christian submission. And the section goes all the way to chapter 6, verse 9. And you see the transitional verse there in chapter 5, verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And there what he's, what he's doing is he's encouraging people to be filled with the Spirit. What that then means, he says there, if you look there at 18, he says, uh, 5.18, Don't be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And then he goes on to explain what exactly that means addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then lastly, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So then that's kind of like the hinge verse that sends us into 522 all the way to 6 chapter 9. And he's going to talk about um, submission and submitting to the appropriate authority. The appropriate authority. 
so what he does is he addresses those who are under authority first, and then he addresses those who are, who are in a position of authority. So he speaks to wives and then husbands. He speaks to servants and then masters. He speaks to children, and then he speaks to the parents. So he's talking about submission to the appropriate category, submission to the appropriate authority. Now, some of you who may be visiting, you may feel like I have mentioned a bad word, the S word of submission. To some, submission is associated with tyranny and oppression. It's associated with some sort of inferiority or superiority. And this brings us to the first aspect of biblical submission. This is the first aspect of biblical submission. Biblical submission does not imply inferiority. Biblical submission does not imply inferiority. No doubt authority or headship can be used and has been used uh, for great ungodliness, therefore making submission really difficult. So an example, uh, taking, for example, husbands, let's say you are leading your homes more like monsters, coldly issuing commands from your lazy boys instead of leading from the trenches, being the trailblazers so that your very own family and your children would have an easier time walking the trail that you have blazed. But while it is true that authority has been abused, should, therefore, every notion of submission and authority be obliterated? So just because some, uh, authority has been abused, should we, therefore, obliterate every notion of submission and authority? I mean, those who say yes think submission requires the categories of inferiority of the one submitting and superiority of the one being submitted to. That's what's inherent for those people who say, yeah, we've got to obliterate all categories of submission. If that's the case, then yes, I think, too, that submission should be obliterated. If every authority was used to abuse other people, because that's not what the Bible says authority is. That kind of sinful uh, authority should be obliterated. But once again, that's not what God calls us to. The Bible holds out a headship and submission in marriage where the one with authority is the one who is loving and giving himself, sacrificing himself in all sorts of ways, just as Jesus did to the death. So according to the Bible here, this submission uh, is a submission where both parties are equal in value. Equal in value. Genesis 1.28 says that men and women are made in the image of God. Both of them are made in the image of God. So to be a person is to be made in the image of God. And therefore, if you are a person, you have great value and great dignity. Regardless of gender. Regardless of ethnicity. Regardless of religious beliefs. No matter what kind of job you work, whether you are mentally or physically handicapped, whether you reject Jesus or not, there is great dignity inherent in being a person made in the image of God. Therefore, all people are equal in value. But the Bible teaches, as the Bible teaches equality in essence, the Bible also teaches that husband and wife nevertheless have different roles. So if you're taking notes, you can just write equality in essence, 
different in role. Equality in essence, different in role. Husband and wife are equal in value, but they, different in, but they differ in role. This is clear in the language of Genesis, where God created his first couple. And there in Genesis chapter 2, God gives Adam the task to care for the world. But also in Genesis 2, God blesses Adam with Eve as his helper. Now, helper does not mean glorified Siri, glorified iPhone. No, Eve was to complement the man. That is, they were to go together. Uh, that she was to match him and that she was fit for him. And they were designed once again to go together. Adam, leading and loving. And then Eve, respecting and submitting. As they were to exercise dominion over the earth, according to Genesis 1.28. So, being one's helper is not necessarily a bad thing. So those of you who, once again, are having this allergic reaction to being called a helper, uh, being a helper is not a bad thing. So did you know that in John 14, 16, Jesus says to his followers, I will send another helper. And of course, if he's going to send another, then who is the other? The another is the spirit. The first helper is Jesus Christ himself. So both the spirit and Jesus have no problem being a helper. To, to owning that job description. So even in the Trinity, you see that, that there is no inferiority in terms of value and essence. All three persons of the Godhead are equal in value. But yet we see submission, right? So the Son submits to the Father. It's the Son who's dedicated to fulfilling the Father's will. You see the Spirit, too, submitting to the Father and the Son, as in John, it is the Father and the Son that send out the Spirit to apply salvation to all of God's people. So we see they're equal in value, even in the Trinity, and yet they differ in role. There's no, no hint of inferiority of essence or superiority of essence. Uh, to bring in our practical experiences, my guess is that at some level, even if you're having this gut reaction, allergic reaction, you're saying, no way to this submission, even at some level, I think we all appreciate submission to a proper authority and an authority used well, don't we? Have you ever worked for a boss who is a respectable person, an honorable person, whether that person be a Christian or a non-Christian? You, you know, this type of submission where you know that this authority has your back, where he's going to use his or her authority for the employee's good. That is your good. He's going to schedule things for your benefit with all fairness. He's going to get your back when, he's, when he or she's going to fight for raises. In that situation, you probably are so happy to own your job description, which probably says, you know, help move forward the company's values, which means also submitting to the appropriate authority. Maybe you would go so far as to say, for some of you who work for really cool companies, which some of you do, maybe you take pride in helping that particular boss. Like you actually want to help your particular boss. Maybe your boss who recognizes your innate gifting, unique abilities. That boss who recognizes and affirms and praises what you genuinely bring to the table. There's no talk of inferiority or superiority, but still there is this embraced structure. You and your boss are worth the same in essence, right? You're worth the same, but yet you clearly have different roles. Applying this to marriage, husbands, does your leadership 
bring joy to your wife? Does your leadership bring joy to your wife? A joy that comes from a confidence, a security, and even a certain pride being under your leadership? Because you, sir, stand for godliness, uprightness, righteousness, holiness, purity, safety, Christ-likeness. Friends, if you want to develop a leadership where submission of uh, your wife's submission becomes a joy, let me encourage you to examine the emotional, spiritual, mental, and physical strengths and capabilities, capacities that God himself has given your wife, those same strengths that she brings to the covenant of your marriage as a complement to you, designed so that you would grow in godliness. Even the world tells managers that uh, this appreciating of skills and gifts and strengths, uh, that, that you as a team leader, you ought to appreciate these things and recognize these things. But we don't need Patrick Lencioni, author of Five Dysfunctions of a Team, or the Harvard Business Review to tell us this. We have God's Word. Where, I, where God creates Adam... He, he parades all of the animals in front of Adam, and Adam goes on and names them, and yet he says, there is, there is no helper fit for me. And then God, reaching the climax here, creates Eve and brings her to Adam, and finally he says, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Here, Adam delights in his wife. He delights in having such a, a, a like partner, his equal even. Rejoicing in God's design of her with, with all the great capacities that God himself has given her, the capacities that are equal to that of man, equal in essence, but yet they differ in role. Uh, you know, husbands, we are fools, aren't we, to not acknowledge the strengths of our wives. We are fools to not uplift them and not to cultivate them, not appreciate them, and not to boast in them. So let me encourage you to acknowledge these things. And then go on and do the same in all of these different areas where her capabilities and capacities exceed yours. It's only the guy who feels that a wife is a threat. I don't know why a man would think that because the man has... God has given the man a wife to be a compliment. Only the foolish man looks at his wife and thinks that, that, that she's a threat. But the wise man recognizes, wow, look at all these strengths you bring to the table where I sincerely am deficient. You can be deficient and still lead. So let me encourage you to acknowledge the strengths, the capacities of your wife, all that she brings to the table of marriage, and appreciate them, cultivate them, praise them publicly. And that'll move towards, hopefully, God willing, creating an environment where her submission becomes a joy. She knows, yes, this man leads me and he appreciates me and he's going to help cultivate all of my strengths. Husbands, in humility, take some time this afternoon to mentally examine your wife's strengths, thanking God for them. And then go on to appreciate your wife for them, letting her know verbally as you appreciate her for who God has made her to be as your uh, complement, 
and it'll work to remind her that biblical submission is not about inferiority of essence. That's the first aspect. Biblical submission is not about inferiority. The second aspect, if you're taking notes, second aspect of biblical submission, submission is not bound by culture. Second aspect of biblical submission, submission is not bound by culture. I heard one critic say recently, uh, Ephesians 5 is not very 2015, meaning, look, this book was written 2,000 years ago and bears no relevance to today. It's interesting that that critic did not relate, uh, did not look at Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's interesting he's not saying, oh, that has no application to today. He's only talking about this submission part. What's interesting, though, is that the authors of Scripture do not base their arguments in culturally situated proof. He doesn't say, wives, submit to your husbands as the church submits to the Lord because, look, this is what we do in the first century. Paul does not reach for first century examples to prove his point. You know what he, where he goes to marshal proof? He goes to what was in the mind of God. He reaches to the original blueprints there. That is God's created order. If you're taking notes there, that's important. You want to underline that. God's creation order. And the order or the design reflects something of the designer. The order or the design is to reflect something of the designer. So take creation, for example. We're going to get to marriage, but take, take creation, for example. Uh, I was in my ophthalmologist's office earlier this week, and we were chatting, and I asked him if he was a Christian. And he told me that his wife was a very strong Christian, uh, but he categorizes himself as a Christian, but is not a Christian according to the Bible. But he did say that uh, in order to get in touch with this supreme being, what he does is uh, he goes outdoors. And he was, um, and he, t- he was talking about how he loves being outdoors, and you can see all the certain nuances and how it reflects this aspect of a supreme being is really interesting, isn't it? Because what he's saying actually is reflected and affirms what it says in the Bible. So I took the opportunity. I said, "Look, did you know that actually that that's exactly what the Bible says?" Uh, I said, "Did you know that the Bible says that creation itself displays the glory of the Creator? The design reflects the designer." according to Psalm chapter 19. And we can know a little bit about the Creator from looking at His creation. And we can't be saved by looking at the creation, but we can know a little bit of His attributes, His glory, His majesty, His power. Uh, this was at the end of our appointment, and He was ushering me out of His office, so uh, that's as far as we got. But I hope to have a good visit the next time. Well, just as creation displays, uh, displays something of the Creator... So does the institution of biblical marriage. At first glance, it's kind of a strange thing, right? We might get it in terms of the creation, but human relationships? The Bible says, yes, it does. The institution of biblical marriage and the husband's and wife's roles in it display something of the creator. Marriage points to the love of God and what that love, that powerful, sacrificial love produces. Marriage points to Christ's love for the church and the church's submission to the Savior. That's why, that's why there's, there, you see the parallels there. Look in 5.22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also 
wives should submit in everything to their husbands. You see the parallels that he's drawing there? The husband's role to Jesus' love to the church. The wife's role to the church's uh, submission to Jesus Christ there. These, these, are, these are fantastic examples that point us directly to God's gospel. Keep in mind that these are God's blueprints. And Paul repeatedly in his writings draws on God's intended design that is supposed to have practical import, practical impact for how we as Christians fulfill our roles, whether at home or at church. Those are the two areas, really, that we're talking about. More specifically, we're looking at uh, uh, the roles in the home. Uh, so we're not really touching in the public sphere at this point in time. We're just talking about home and then also in the church. But Jesus, too, he mentions this created order in Matthew 19, 1-6. You can look, that, look at that later on. Uh, for Paul's references, you can look at 1 Timothy 3. You can look at 1 Corinthians 11. And he says that here, the, the, in those places, that the husband is to be the head and is to lead, and that the, that the Christian wife is to submit and to respect. And he bases his arguments in created order. So he reaches back to God's original blueprints in his mind, that God then moves forward in time and then creates this institution of Christian marriage. That every marriage from this point on, forever into eternity so long as we exist, is to point back to what he has conceived in his mind, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul, even here in this passage, is pointing to creation order. If you look there in 531, he eventually says, he quotes from the Old Testament, from the book of Genesis, therefore, Genesis 2.24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Right In marriage, the husband is to love his wife as his own flesh, he says. And this is all based in Genesis 2.24. But then he goes on, look there in 32. He says, this mystery, he just finished referencing Adam and Eve. He says, this mystery is profound that I am saying that it refers to not ultimately Adam and Eve, but to Christ and the church. That's the blueprints in God's mind that Paul here reaches back. He says, look, Husbands, wives, you want to know you, your roles in marriage that glorifies and uplifts Jesus Christ and his gospel? You go back to God's intended order. When the husband and wife live according to God's design, it glorifies God, the author of creation, and people experience the good in marriage. Thinking then about our roles in Christian marriage, uh, we draw analogies from Handel's Messiah, the introduction. How do we as participants best sound forth the Messiah? And how do we, through our playing, honor, handle in, a, in, a, in an appropriate human way? Isn't it when each individual musician, musician plays his or her specific part? It's then that the piece is beautified and the conductor is honored. Uh, so it is in marriage. When the husband receives and plays his part of loving leader who sacrifices himself for his wife, and when the wife receives and plays her part as his helper, submitting and respecting, then marriage is enjoyed the way that God intended it to be enjoyed, and Christ is exalted as his love is reflected in marriage. Friends, you see how the gospel of Jesus Christ is made much of in self-sacrificial headship 
and in a submission that respects her husband. You see how these are gospel realities involved in our ethical conduct in marriage? So the gospel is made much of here. The husband reflects Christ's love as he gave himself, as God sent his son to take on flesh, to live a perfect life, to die on the cross for the church, bearing the wrath that everyone who ever repented and believed deserved. He loved the church personally. We saw this in the past. Personally, passionately, particularly, purposefully, and purifyingly. Jesus there gives of himself, laying down his life for the church. And then he goes on and he loves the church as his own body, right? So only a fool would think that his, his other parts of his body are out to get him. And so Jesus loves his body. He cherishes it. And then the church, having been loved by this Christ, having experienced this great and deep love that we sang about earlier, having seen and experienced Christ lay down his life for her, for her safety, for protection, for salvation, right? Jesus isn't, Jesus isn't loving from his lazy boy throne in heaven, just commanding us to do stuff, but instead he blazes the trail so that we might walk after him. Uh, the church then is able to rest in her Savior's arms, in joyful and glad submission. And I'm guessing that wives here, at least to some degree, know a little bit of what this is like when your husband is loving and leading well, self-sacrificially giving up himself for you. The Christian wife who strives to submit to her husband as head, this passage says, seeks not to exalt the man or herself, but Jesus Christ. Right? Because when she rests in submitting ultimately to Christ, doesn't that point out the glories of Jesus Christ, the safety of Jesus Christ? the great capacity that Christ have, has in loving sinners who deserve nothing but judgment. Here, Christ is made much of as each play their God-given role to fulfill their God-given plan of making much of the God-given gospel. You know, unfortunately, despite the maestro's design, we insist on playing the wrong parts or even insist on rewriting the entire composition, don't we? This is because of sin. This is what Adam and Eve did in their sin. We see this in the fall of man, Adam's colossal failure, even though he was charged to lovingly lead. You see him very passive. He's not guarding Eve from the tempter. He's not uh, reminding her and encouraging her and spurring her on to hold fast to the word of God. Instead, you just kind of don't see him at all, which is the failure of many men here. And everywhere. You also see Eve giving in to temptation. She apparently knows already that to do these things, to, go, to not eat of the fruit of the tree, she knows that already, presumably because Adam had told her, but yet she's not going to him in submission. I mean, we too, you realize that if you are here today and you are a human being, you too are a sinner and you know fundamentally what this sin of Adam and Eve is. God gives us a design. We say, I don't really care. God desires to live in fellowship with us, but we rewrite the whole entire composition. And we even do this in marriage. So no longer is marriage the union of one man and one woman, but it is moving very quickly to what the individual wants. And so you can literally find uh, um, various definitions of marriage. People even, you have uh, these uh, cultural critics 
who are even saying that soon you'll be able to marry robots or marry your pets, for example. And I believe that that day is soon coming. We say in our sin, forget God's design. We uh, forget God's design with God's assigned roles, making much of God's given gospel. In our sin, we would rather say marriage is designed by us, where we assign ourselves whatever roles we want and an effort to make much of ourselves. This, friends, is the essence of sin. And you can apply it not only to marriage, but to every single aspect of your life. So if you see any bit of chaos in your life, chaos in marriage, chaos in relationships, you realize, friends, that that's a result of sin. That we've rejected God's design for us and then God's design for our interactions with, with one another. So if you go back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 3, we see there that in man's sin, we have messed up our relationship with God. We have messed up our relationship with one another, as Adam blamed Eve, and then Eve blamed the serpent, and no one's taking responsibility. And even our relationship with the earth is messed up. So we've messed up all of these relationships with God, with one another, and then even to the ground that we're supposed to work and till. And friends, if you see any bit of chaos, that is a result of sin in every area of our lives. Given that is the way many see marriage today, Christians, you see the power of Christian testimony in marriage? If that really is the way that's what's going on outside, that people are redefining things and rejecting God's design to magnify God and his God-given roles, magnify the God-given gospel, you realize what, the power, what a powerful testimony there is in Christian marriage. Where each one of us is playing our specific part. And you realize that in doing so, God is putting his orchestra back together so that we might play a beautiful tune. If you've been with us for the, book, for the rest of Ephesians, you know that God intends his people, his church, according to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, to display his manifold wisdom to the world. So he gathers sinners together and he reconciles us to each other, right? Where we, we might have had a, a severe differences and even hostility towards one another. He pacifies us, and we are enabled to forgive just as he has forgiven us. So he draws his people together. He's also reconciling all of us to himself through the cross of Jesus Christ and through his blood. So this, all this reconciliation takes place through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But friends, here in our passage, we see that Christians, and even our marriage life, is to display the glory of God to the world. Going back to you, non-Christian. You know, we, we don't say that we are perfect in our marriages. Absolutely not. If you were to watch me and my wife, you recognize that I lead in harshness at times. And you would recognize that oftentimes Melanie might struggle to not submit. Actually, I think she does a great job submitting. But there are times, you know, when we are just natural, sinful people. And by God's grace, we are called to repent of our sin, confess our sin... And then ask for forgiveness, all by God's grace. And you see even the failure and then the reconciliation is evidence of the power of the cross. Friends, you can have that too if you turn from your sin, if you repent and believe in the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we are free, which is why Oscar today can lead us in a confession easily. We're not fearful of confession. We're not fearful of acknowledging our sin. Because Christ commands us to confess our sin, knowing that he will forgive us. 
And so we boast in the cross that reconciles us to one another and then also to God himself. Friends, you too can know this reconciliation, this restoration, even in relationships. Forgiveness of sin, right standing with God if you repent of your sin and trust in it. The question for all of us to ask in relation to marriage is, will we play the arrangement that God has given you? And even more fundamentally than that is, do you trust that God has your good interest in mind? This brings us to the third aspect of biblical submission. The third aspect of biblical submission is a submission flowing from Christ-like love. It is a submission flowing from Christ-like love. Trust is a big deal, isn't it? And for those who do not trust, submission feels like a huge burden. Perhaps you, gals, have asked the question, why do I have to bear such a difficult burden? And you know that a certain exhaustion drives the question. A certain exhaustion from being under, frankly, difficult leadership. Just imagine, men particularly, just imagine being in the shoes of someone who has needed to, out of necessity, suspect and doubt leadership. Because you know, you never know if that authority figure is going to use their authority for your protection or your destruction. Just take one moment to step in the shoes of some gal who has grown up in that situation. Husbands, you realize that that might be the unfortunate environment that your wife has grown up in? Brothers, take note, because the question, why do I have to bear such a difficult burden, it often reflects the fact that the men around the woman's life have not led in love. Husbands, if that is your wife's situation, you see what a beautiful, wonderful opportunity you have all of that weight of responsibility on you that you can take, that responsibility that you can embrace to prove to your wife and show her just how far you will go in love as you make marriage a safe place for her. Just like the church's relationship with Jesus is a safe place, so you, brother, have that opportunity to make your marriage a safe place for the particular woman that God has placed in your care. And by God's grace, the weight she feels in submission, maybe even the submission that she grew up understanding, might be replaced with joy in submission to a man determined to see the grace of Christ ruled over every aspect of his life and hers too. Jesus proves to the church and shows just how far his love will go. There is nothing that Christ withholds from his church. As it says there, that Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Ephesians 5.25 Physically, he suffers and dies for the church. Emotionally, he experiences anguish for the church, sweating drops of blood as he prayed in the garden, committing himself to fulfill the Father's will. And then even spiritually, he endured being forsaken by the Father as He bore our sin and the wrath that we deserved in order to accomplish reconciliation, in order to see that the church would know the love of the Father, in order that the church would be secured in the Father's hand. And all of this, Hebrew says, He does for the joy set before Him. 
Just as Jesus gives himself to the church, so you husband are called to bear the weight of love. Loving your wife as your own body. Protecting, caring, nourishing, and nurturing. Husband, does your wife ever find it hard to submit to you? If she does, have you ever considered that you may be asking her to exhaust herself for you without ever having exhausted yourself for her? It is so easy to sit in the lazy boy throne and just delegate and command. So much harder, because this is a true biblical love, to lead as a trailblazer, sacrificing, loving, walking the trail in order that everyone who might follow and everyone you might call to follow might have an easier time walking. Two encouragements for you as you lead your wife. First, to help you understand what it must be like to submit to you, let me encourage you just to to dwell on your weaknesses. Dwell on your weaknesses and then think about how it negatively affects your wife's submission to you. Are you easy to follow? Or are you a difficult person to follow? Grouchy, detached, uncompassionate. Uh, To help you embrace your weaknesses, uh, you know the characteristics of your wife's submission to you at any given moment may actually reflect the characteristics of your leadership. Is your wife's submission frigid, cold, distant? You can imagine you know, a gal willing to do what you ask as the head, but she does this without heart, without any desire to truly help. I mean, could that reflect that your leadership is equally cold, equally lacking in heart, where you don't give yourself to knowing the very people that you are to lead? Could it be that your wife's coldness is a reflection of your cold leadership? Is your wife's submission, let's say, uninformed? Submitting, yes, but not often knowing why she is doing certain things. Perhaps your leadership lacks clarity in itself. Perhaps you don't take the time to explain. Always busy doing about what you want to do and seeing your wife not as a partner, but really as a glorified Siri who you just assume knows everything. Siri, in fact, doesn't know everything. Is your wife's submission simply kind of lacking? Maybe it's because your leadership, actually, of, of love is lacking as well. Look at your wife's submission and then question yourself. Does her submission reflect my leadership? And where you find your leadership to be cold or absent, brothers, confess those sins. It's not a threat for her to acknowledge and recognize your weaknesses. She already knows them. And how awesome is it for you to lead in love and lead in confession and repentance and saying, look, I know that this is where God wants me to go, wants us to go. Would you please forgive me and help me move in that direction? And I guarantee you, your wife, as she's seeking godliness and filled with the Spirit, she will say, absolutely. Praise God you acknowledge those weaknesses. Now let me help you and let's work on your strengths. And she will want to, if she's filled by the Spirit, submitting to Jesus Christ ultimately, want to encourage your godly love and your leadership. Second encouragement as you lead your wife, it's to lead in submission. Second encouragement here is to lead in submission. 
Many men make the mistake of thinking that only wives have to submit, so they go away from this passage just simply thinking that, yes, it's the wives' job to submit. But did you know, brothers, that you too have to submit? You should be experts in submission. You, as we see next week, are, are called, you were called to submit to your parents. You're called to honor them even right now. And then not only that, though, in Hebrews 13, 17, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they, are seeking, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be no advantage of you. So let me encourage you, brothers, lead in submission. Do you invite leadership and authority here in this church into your life? Have you ever thought about asking an elder, I'm not puffing up myself, or any godly person, <clears throat> have you ever thought about asking an elder or any godly person to actually say, would you speak into my life? This is an issue I'm working with. Can you help me? Help me think through my job. Help me think through my career. Help me think through where I live in effort to, to bless the church. Do you listen to the words of those who are in authority over your lives? Do you wrestle with the words of those who are in authority over you? Isn't this great, brothers, that here you know, or you should at least know, what submission looks like? And then once again, you can, you can bring to your wife and say, look, I know because sometimes I might disagree with Jeremy and the other Jeremy or any godly person here at the church. We might have personality differences. Sometimes he might be a little bit too gentle. Sometimes he might be a little bit too harsh. Sometimes he might be a little bit uh, not so informed. But yet I take his advice or the elder's advice or any godly person's advice to the word of God to corroborate it with scripture and he's challenging me. And boy, is it really challenging. So regardless of personality differences, we need to apply what he says insofar as it is Christ-like. And then your wife will say, oh, wow, this is a man who submits himself to the word of God. I have no doubt. And doesn't that make submission a joy to the gal? When she sees you blazing that path of submission to ultimately God. Husbands, if you want to grow in your Christ-like love, develop an awareness of what it is like to submit to you, a sinful person. And then lead out of sympathetic awareness as you too are called to submit to other people. Wives, I recognize, this might be the first time I'm actually speaking to you, but appropriately so, since the burden of leadership falls on the man's shoulders. But wives, I recognize that the burden of submission might still be there, and perhaps it has even increased. As you wonder, what if there is no Christ-like love present? What if he isn't even a Christian? And therefore won't understand what I'm talking about. Do I still need to submit? This leads us to point number four. Fourth aspect of biblical submission. Biblical submission trusts ultimately in the Lord. So the question is, you know, do you need to submit? It is a very legitimate question. And to work towards an answer... Let's first note that there are boundaries to biblical submission. There, in fact, are boundaries to biblical submission. And I know that it seems that this passage, at first glance, seems to teach an unlimited and unqualified submission. So if you look there at the passage, Ephesians chapter 5, uh, 22 to 24, it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. But this actually does not mean an unqualified submission. 
I found Peter, uh, commentator, New Testament commentator Peter O'Brien's commentary helpful here. He writes, when the passage reads, submit as to the Lord, we are not to think, well, the same loyalty that I give Jesus as Lord, I'm supposed to give to my husband. Rather, it's better to think my submission to my husband is part of my submission to the Lord. So you see there, submitting to the Lord is not one-to-one submitting to my husband. Rather, submitting to my husband is part of the larger category of submitting to the Lord. In submitting to your husband, you submit to the Lord's plan, the Lord's design, and the Lord's will. And then when it says submit in everything, the sense of the words mean submitting in every area of one's life, he says, as opposed to every specific call to submit. Peter O'Brien, he continues, no part of her life should be outside of her relationship to her husband and outside of submission to him. So practical example, you know, if your wife, or sorry, if your husband calls you to rob a bank with him, you should not comply. You are not obligated by God to submit in that way. Or let's continue to think something more personal. Let's say the husband calls the wife to participate in some deviant sexuality. Is she required to submit? The answer is no. It doesn't make sense for Paul to call Christian wives to submit unconditionally when it goes directly against her true Lord's will. After all, Paul himself taught that some authorities are to be disobeyed when their commands go against God's commands. So Paul taught that citizens are, in fact, to obey their rulers, yet at the same time he disobeyed them when those rulers tried to overrule God. The same goes for the Apostle Peter. The rulers are told him to shut up about the gospel, and he responded, it is better to obey God rather than man. So sisters, this submission is not an unconditional submission. There are boundaries. Now, there's a whole lot of gray in that, some things are very black and white, but indeed there's a whole lot of gray. That's where godly wisdom here comes in use. But if your husband is trying to lead you into sin, this is a black and white issue. If your husband is trying to lead you into sin against God, you are not required to submit. Christians have for a long time stated that where the husband has abandoned his covenantal commitment to his wife in a permanent way where there is no re- repentance... Divorce is a legitimate option. And godliness does not necessarily equal staying in that relationship. Imagine where the wife's life is physically threatened by the husband. So they're in the covenant relationship of marriage between Christians. There the man is supposed to care for his wife and protect her. But instead he uses that strength not to protect but to harm and wants to kill her. There, obviously, the the man has abandoned his covenantal responsibilities, where God's provision of where there is, and in this instance, God's provision of divorce, while it is certainly not ideal, it is, in my view, nevertheless, a mechanism for protection. This is just reality living in a sinful world. So there are situations where godliness does not automatically mean staying in the marriage and submitting to the desires of the husband. Gals, if you find yourself in that situation, the best thing to do is to come and talk to the leaders of the church where we can help by trying to spiritually oversee the situation and as well to help get the appropriate authorities involved in the situation. 
Now, some of you guys may be thinking, okay, well, that's not my category. You may be thinking, okay, there is an abandonment like that, but my husband just isn't a Christian. Am I still called to submit? And the answer, the short answer of it is yes. Now, if your world here is crumbling because of what I just said, I think you'd be helped to examine what you live for. If you live for the perfect relationship, where all your desires are fulfilled, all your romantic desires he longs to fulfill, the innermost thoughts of your hearts he longs to listen to, and at 12 a.m. at night, frankly, you are living for the wrong things. Sister, God wants to readjust your worship compass. Did you know that when God calls you to submit, he doesn't call you to live for him? It's at that point there that submission then becomes hopeless if you're living for your husband, who's a sinful person. God calls you to live for Jesus Christ in submission. God's will, fulfilling your God-given role, not so that you would be magnified, but, uh, but that the God-given gospel would be magnified. That's, at, that's what's at stake in your submission to your husband. So turn over to 1 Peter 3.1. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Here Peter calls wives of non-Christians to live for God's purposes through the act of submission. And it says there, likewise, wives be subject. He's calling the wives, just like Paul does, to submit yourself here. He's calling the wife to consider doing this yourself. Submit yourself. Be subject to your own husbands. Now here's the purpose. So that... Even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Now, how is that possible? How are they to be won to Jesus Christ? It is when they see your respectable and pure conduct. Now, if your submission is conditioned on your husband fulfilling all of your desires and being the perfect husband, or if you think you are to submit only when your man is making much of you, these words aren't going to make sense at all. Here, Peter calls Christian wives to make much of Jesus Christ in submission and to do so by laboring to display uh, the character of the king and Christ's kingdom priorities to your very husband, whether he be a Christian or a non-Christian. And in his relationship with you, you realize, sisters, that he comes face to face with a person saved by the blood of Christ with someone who possesses all confidence, faith, and strength, and purpose, and identity in Jesus Christ. He sees your ultimate hope that's anchored not in marriage, or in Him, or even in your desires to be made much of, but in Jesus Christ. That's the hope that Peter points you to, a hope in God. Look there in verse 5. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves making themselves attractive, that is, by submitting them, submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. What's the hope in the midst of fear? If you realize and you wonder, is my husband going to lead us in bad ways, etc., etc., here he says, do not hope in your husband, but hope in God. Now again, there's a whole lot of gray if you think your husband is making some serious wrong decisions. And at this point in time, Christian sister, uh, I just pass on advice to you that I read in a book, a very solid book. Uh, the authors encourage husbands to just state to their wives, look, if I am making a wrong decision 
and I am refusing to repent of my sin, and I'm refusing to listen to godly counsel, you have all permission and authority to go and seek out a godly man in the church or even the pastors to intervene in between our marriage. So brother, if you do not have that mechanism already in place, if you've not charged your wife to go and seek godly counsel, if you refuse to repent and continue in faith, or if you are leading the relationship in a bad way, Brothers, I encourage you strongly this afternoon to give your wife that charge to go seek intervention. But sisters, know that you are called to submit, not because your husband is all that. Again, if you think your husband is all that, then submission will fail every single time. But if Christ is all that, then submission will win because you're displaying even to a non-Christian hard-hearted husband the beauties of Jesus Christ, the glories of his love, and the rest that the church receives in his arms. Biblical submission trusts ultimately in the Lord. Sisters, our, brothers and sisters, our passage teaches us that number one, biblical submission does not imply inferiority. Number two, biblical submission is not bound by culture. Number three, biblical submission is a submission that flows from Christ-like love. And then number four, <clears throat> Biblical submission trusts ultimately in the Lord. As we wrap up Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23, here's the main point. Christian marriage is designed by God to follow a pattern that is Christ's relationship with the church. As Christ loved the church, so husbands are to love their wives. As the church submits to Christ, so wives are to submit and respect their husbands. Sisters, Christ's call for you to submit yourselves to your husbands is a very important part of living out the fact that your ultimate hope is in Jesus Christ and not in any man. And Christ intends you to be a beautiful display, playing your part. A beautiful display of what it looks like to have all confidence and faith and protection in Christ. In fulfilling your part, marriage can be seen as beautiful and Christ and his gospel exalted. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we pray that you would help us. We pray, Father, for the husbands who bear such weight of responsibility in leading and loving like Jesus does. Father, we pray that you would enlarge in our hearts, and just as it says in your word, we pray, Lord, that you would help us live with our wives in an understanding manner. That we would sacrifice of ourselves in every sort of way, physical, emotional, spiritual, mental, in order to create a safe place where the wives here in this room feel that their covenant relationship with our husband and marriage is a safe place for them. God, we pray that us husbands, we would be quick to confess our sin, quick to ask for forgiveness, quick to want to be reconciled with God and those around us. We pray, Lord, that we would lead in submission, that we would submit ourselves to the word of God, And we would seek to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, whose love is perfect and righteous and steady and faithful. 
Lord Jesus, we pray to you that you would enable the Christian women here to submit themselves to their, to their husbands. Father, we pray that you would enable them to trust not in a sinful person, themselves or man, but ultimately trust Jesus Christ. Father, we pray, <clears throat> pray that through their <clears throat> beautiful submission that the gospel of Jesus Christ would be made much of. That they would remind their very own husbands about the very love that Jesus Christ has for the church. And that there is rest in that relationship. As we saw earlier, Jesus Christ calls all to find rest in Him. Father, we pray for patience for them. We ask, Lord, that they would uh, have great patience with sinful people. We pray too, Lord, that they would be quick as well to confess their sin, to seek reconciliation as they submit ultimately to God. Lord, we ask that they would prize the role that you have assigned to them as it is by your design in order to make much of your gospel. In your name we pray.